0: Right now, Washington is preparing legislation that will cut off foreign investment into China. That's according to my two guests today, Harold Malmgren and Nick Glintzman. According to them, the Biden administration is preparing an executive order that will fundamentally alter America's financial relationship with China. Harold Malmgren is an ambassador who has been an advisor to four U.S. presidents and has been dealing with the Chinese and the Russians at the highest level for over half a century. Nick, for his own right, is an investor who has been a portfolio manager at macro hedge funds such as Brevin Howard. Their new venture, malmgren Glinsman Partners, is a research partner of Forward Guidance. So if you want discounted access, please email me at jack at But in the meantime, let's get into this conversation. Gentlemen, great to have you here. Let's get right into it. Harold, what is going on right now in Washington with regards to China? Please give me and my audience all the details.
1: In the Senate we have a um, hundred senators every one of them thinks they could be do a better job than the president just waiting their shirt and they're frustrated with they, they can't agree on anything and suddenly they have discovered they can agree on one thing on both parties and that is uh let's hit china so China, as a common common enemy, unites both parties. So there's a lot lot of pressure on now from the Senate to the White House. Uh, Either you do something or we will, and if we don't like what you do, we'll do something more. And uh, so the White House is practically trying to draft an executive order that, that would set up a review committee to review all US investments in China that would be dramatically different from anything that had ever happened in the past
0: and when you say review all investments what does that mean and and what are the implications
2: we believe that if congress passes the legislation it will be a mandatory review of all investments into china and the specific correct me if i if i've missed out any Uh, The specific areas that would be precluded for investment purposes would be into any uh, investments, be they corporates or otherwise, that are connected to the PLA, Chinese army. Uh, Any investments involving high tech, such as AI, supercomputers, um, and the like. Okay. Uh, Obviously, chips as well. Um, If that, as I said, Congress, because of this strange peculiarity, if you go back to the U.S. Constitution under Article 1, Section Eight, 3, Congress has the right to legislate on foreign policy, foreign trade policy. Um, so as Harold said, there's 100 senators who were sitting there wondering, what can we do? And they suddenly find themselves in agreement on China and bashing China. Now, what we heard was because that was getting, that's got a strong bipartisan majority actually in both houses, um, Biden wanted to step in front with an executive order, is this the first steps towards capital controls? It will have the impact of such on those specific investment areas. So you're looking at the where it will impact investors will be in venture capital, private equity. But if you, if you take Maxine Waters, who wants to broaden it to include hedge funds and public markets, then you're looking at public markets, you're looking at ETFs such as CQQQ, which is technology ETF from Invesco. There will be be shares in that ETF that will have to be excluded. This will be quite a mess. And um, if you took it, if you extrapolated it to its ultimate, there is a case to say Chinese government bonds should be included because how does the military get funded? by the public purse. How does the public purse get funded? Fiscal. However, on that, we think that would be a step too far because that would probably have implications on the U.S. Treasury market and China's holding their own.
0: Harold, just describe for our audience how closely tied the U.S. financial system is with China. In particular, it's not just the publicly traded stocks that uh, Nick mentioned. But it's also the vast amount of money that's uh, hidden from people who are just investing in stocks. It's the Chinese bond market, as Nick said. It's private equity, which has been absolutely pouring money into China, particularly real estate. So, Harold, just just how close is that relationship? And what gives you such confidence that this relationship is, is going to be broken?
1: Well, the big relationships vary, but, it, but they include outfits like uh, Blackstone, and KKR, I mean, they include some of the giants. And then you have a lot of pension funds who are invested in zones, <laughs> who will have implications for them. The problem is that we're, a large part of our lending and investing is done by unregulated uh, non-bank lenders. And uh, so... The Fed and the Treasury don't really know uh, readily how much the flow is. But uh, we have friends looking at the data. It looks like the flow into China is diminishing at the moment uh second thoughts among investors at this moment. And then the, the, the biggest sovereign wealth fund in Asia uh, Government Investment Corporation of Singapore publicly announced that they are pulling back from their exposure in China. And uh, there was almost no news about it in the U.S. press, but they are the the most knowledgeable about China of all the investors. And when they are getting cautious, uh, that means that they see trouble uh, that maybe China is becoming uninvestable.
0: Harold, can you explain in a in a very basic way for me and our audience why is Congress and you know, President Biden why are they so determined and why are the, the U.S. you know uh, uh, citizenry is is so in favor of aggressive trade action against China? You know what has China done that that makes America and you know uh, so willing to uh you'll know, get get pretty aggressive when it comes to trade policy.
1: Well there are two Chinas. The China that we look at as an economy and then we have the the military side. And I think what everybody fails to understand is the way Xi Jinping came to power, he separated the military. The military reports only to him. They don't talk to the to the uh, party, uh, the Politburo, and uh, and so uh, it's not well understood that if the military is flying balloons over the U.S., probably the civilians in China know nothing about it. Uh, It's a failure of management at the top. It's two separate worlds. The military is what it is. And uh, the military people are so belligerent in their talking. Uh, and, and China is only recently stopped using so-called wolf warriors in diplomacy. Uh, now, all of a sudden, they're saying, oh, we welcome foreign investors. The reason is incoming investment is drying up. And the Chinese government is really worried that they won't have... Uh, An underpinning of foreign investments
0: to help boost the economy. I think that they think they're in trouble. Why is investment into China so important? You know, I think of China as having a massive uh, trade surplus, a current account surplus, which means they export more than they import, so they are sitting on just a, a stockpile of U.S. treasuries, so they have lots of money. What, what, why is the need for Blackstone and all these firms to you know send dollars into to China to fund projects if, if China has all this money already?
1: Uh, the world has changed. This is a year when uh, the China, China's growth model essentially is dying. Uh, there is no demand for their exports. There's no demand for exports of any of the big manufacturers, Japan, China, Iran, uh, South Korea, even Germany is running out of borders. Um, There's a slump in world trade manufacturers, and they know that. And so that that has been their engine, but it looks like it's over. Our view is that uh, we're entering a period of, of uh, China, you know, China's new century just finished, and we're going to see slow growth, domestically driven growth, and no big export surpluses for some years ahead.
2: In terms of um, uh, exports, um, we've seen the data, the Chinese have seen the data. And now we were talking about this earlier before we came in on air. And again, here we have another example of a key piece of information that just hasn't been covered. Uh, there's a, a CCP, China Communist Party publication, Kyushin Magazine. You read that this is the, the world and policy according to the gospel of the CCP. So anything that gets printed there should be taken very seriously. We last Wednesday week, so if we're Thursday, one week ago, more just a day up beyond one week ago, um, she had an article published, and it had three, it was a, a discussion of the key challenges facing China, the Chinese economy. And there was this discussion in his paper where he pledged to boost domestic consumption and public investments, um, but... What he also said is all we need to do on exports is stabilize exports to developed countries and expand exports to emerging markets. If you com- compare consumption and investments, um, exports clearly are now no longer considered the main driver for the Chinese economy. That is stated in that policy article. He's put exports behind boosting Chinese domestic consumption and public investment.
0: And Nick, explain how that's different from the uh, Chinese stimulus in, let's say, 2016 or the biblical Chinese stimulus in 2009 that helped the global economy emerge from the great financial crisis. What was it about that stimulus that's different from the current stimulus? And what might the uh, different consequences be now that it's it's focused on domestic consumption?
2: Pure and simple, the, the stimulus that would be involved now would be aimed directly at benefiting domestic consumers. Remember, you've got to understand with the domestic consumers, between 40 and 60% of their private wealth is in real estate. We've just, and again, this is another aspect of the Chinese economy that has little emphasis. Yes, we all know that the real estate markets had a slump. This was a massive bubble that burst. And in one of our previous papers, we've defined that bubble as equivalent to what happened to japan in the 80s and then it got followed by the lost decade right uh that's what we think is going to happen with china as well china entering a lost decade that is a such i i find it interesting that people uh and analysts talk about revenge consumption now that the economy is back open revenge consumption by the wealthy sure revenge consumption by the middle and lower classes who just had a massive hit to their personal wealth i find that difficult to believe so that's where the you know the boost will be very direct the fiscal boost will be very directed at domestic consumer and i guess the domestic companies plus the usual public investment which is pushing on a Uh whereas you know the uh previous stimulus had all been directed at Supporting all the companies that were building up the big export orders, okay? And that's quite a big difference, all right? And what I've just said relates to the second point. People need to remember about China. They've just gone through this massive bubble burst. This is one of the biggest bubbles ever, the Chinese real estate market. It's then looking to stabilize it at a low. It's not coming back in any way. Yes, the market in Chinese junk bonds can rally, but that's just the financial markets. There are, you know, the developers are short of cash. The the foreign investors in Chinese property real estate companies have been treated abysmally. Okay. The key demand aspect is not new buyers. The key demand aspect for uh, Chinese real estate is the speculative buyers. Buy a second home, buy a third home. This whole community is just taking a massive hit. So I, I think this time round, if it if that Kyushio article is as is accurate on how pointed policy response will be, they'll they'll pay the Chinese consumer to consume. So it, it will, you know, it will it will be like. Um, you know, subsidies on buying electric cars would be all sorts of stuff. It may be even subsidies on buying rent estate, but this they're working. The, the number one area they've talked about is restoring and expanding consumption demand. It's number one because it's it's been hit, and hit really hard by this bubble burst.
0: And uh, Harold, what is your level of confidence that an executive order by Biden? Will be passed that has the level of um uh, aggressive action that that you and Nick are are talking about you know i mean there's things that you it's forty percent certain sixty percent confident what's what's your level of confidence that this is coming and what's what's the time horizon
1: um sometime in march it's, you know it's four or five weeks. um no if if it could get postponed um if there's some kind of big uh, bargaining taking place between Biden and she about Ukraine. But uh, right now, we we don't see that, but we can't see what, what they're talking about. Uh, putting in a restraint on investment, even if it begins small, is kind of spread out. The theory of the, of the politicians is everything we send to them goes to build up their economy their state enterprises and therefore their military power and it's bad for the u.s and they are so belligerent we have to do something to rein them in so it will start with uh focus on some key sectors uh in technology up till now the chinese t- pretty hard that we were cutting off a whole semiconductor sector, but now the question is are we going to cut off the U.S. investment in everything else? Uh, the high-tech industry in China is quietly, well, I don't know how quietly, they, they are raising uh, a bus with the Central Committee you know, we can't survive without that. We need the umbilical cord with the U.S. We're not ready to cut it. We're not ready to be on our own. Uh, don't have a complete decoupling. So there's a lot of pressure on C to try to avoid uh, something dramatically bad. Uh, it makes him look bad. So... <clears throat> um, you know, decoupling up to now it has been about specific products. But if it's about investment, that means, you know, investment in real estate, investment in uh scientific and and uh research going on in the universities. Uh but the Congress wants us to review all that and stop some of it, slow down the flow.
0: The screws are already being turned on Trade—they already have been turned uh, with the, the Chips, Act, Chips and Science Act, and that—that's trade. That's the, the transaction of goods. But when it comes to the flow of capital, of foreign investment into China, that hasn't happened yet. But you're saying that's being worked on right now. And Harold, will that w- would that uh, restriction of foreign direct uh, investment into China would that apply only to new investments, new private equity deals, new venture capital deals into China? Or would it apply retroactively to deals that were done in 2021, 2020,
1: 2018? Yeah, probably it will start by new. But then a lot of investors will have to say wait a minute, how exposed am I? Uh, we, we took a big position in um, some Chinese battery producer last year. Is that viable? Um, Will China retaliate? Will they strike back? And if they do, what would they do? Uh, I mean they could they should say to Tesla, sorry, it's been nice having you as a partner, but you you're you're you gone. Uh, we're taking over. And then um, you know, and they, I mean, our companies or GM, I mean, I can see that Trying saying to Mary Barra, you can keep your office here, but we're moving the decision making to the central committee. I mean, the, it, it could get
2: very nasty. Jack, I would equate this to uh, we don't think it's going to be retrospective, but some of the asset allocators' responses, responses could have a similar act, uh, impact to retrospective. So if you think of um, a large U.S. pension fund, state pension fund, or insurance company, or as we saw with GIC in Singapore. If they say we want out of these funds because of the way you're invested. Then liquidity has to be raised. Pressure is on the fund manager to get liquidity, which I suspect will be leverage to pay these clients out. But that pressure could snowball. So it's sort of like the similar effect. The, alter- the You know, also the other thing is one of the reactions, don't think the Chinese won't react. They don't react, so they could react badly. One of the reactions, of course, could be, you know, at the corporate level is um, effectively nationalizing, taking control of the assets. Uh, in the financial level, it could simply be, you're not taking any money out of this country. So what does the... Uh, you know, a Sequoia domestic, what they call a domestic office independently managed, but with foreign investors, what would they do if they got redemptions and they can't pay? The head the head office in California. I tell you what was really interesting about this is the lawyers, the lawyer in the legal profession, only Washington DC and Silicon Valley lawyers are looking at this. We haven't heard of any New York offices focusing. So finance is sort of neglecting it, except if you think about Silicon Valley, it's both the tech companies and VC and private equity. That's where where it's gonna hit. So it's those two areas, but I think finance should be looking at this because there are implications for the public markets. You know, you may get one portfolio manager, a CIO saying, This is really complex legislation. It ain't going to get any easier. In fact, it could be added to out of China. We'll do Chinese proxies. Okay, so this is, you know, that's where you have a retrospective reaction to something that's not retrospective. I would equate it to what's happened with ESG and the impact it's had on some funds and some corporates, right? The impact has been equivalent to retrospective even though it's forward-looking policy so in that respect there is an impact that could be retrospective
0: be- because the Chinese stock market has, has been in such a vicious bear market you know the last few months notwithstanding do you think that foreign investors have you know enough of them have already dropped their their holdings of Chinese stocks so the crash has so to speak already happened or no
2: i th- I think what's happened this year is the trend has been to try those those uh, sectors, those assets, try it again. It didn't work last year, but try it again because it's so cheap and beaten up. And you know the, the I think that's not necessarily a policy for investments right now, especially if you've got. I mean, if you if you have this this policy coming through, and it's not just um, you know, it's not just the U.S. The Europeans are looking at policy to restrict investments, more at the corporate level. But I think uh, once this starts to kick through, it will be a slow bleed, but you'll get occasional moments where just get me out of this position. Get me out. And they'll all talk to each other and it could it could snowball. Um you know, so I think that's important. And then at the corporate level, I I would I, w- I want to mention this as well in terms of Chinese retaliation. So the Inflation Reduction Act has also had an impact on Chinese exports to the U.S. The Chinese retaliation to that, which includes not just retaliating against the U.S., but also the European Union, i.e. the West, is they're going to cut exports of raw materials and intermediate goods for the solar energy market. Well, at present, the West depends on China. It's like 95% of all the product they need comes from China. Of course, you know, if you look at the uh area of their business, the Germans actually started it, but they lost out because the Chinese kept subsidizing and it became cheaper and cheaper and there was, the Germans became uncompetitive. So of course, the West can rebuild, but it ain't going to be easy and it isn't going to be cheap. So the, then the question is, what's the consumer prepared to pay? So, um, you know, the Chinese are going to retaliate. That's an example of a really, if you think about it, we're gonna cut off raw materials and intermediate goods that are part of the supply chain for solar energy. And that's that has a massive impact on net zero. So they're not they're not mucking around the track. They will retaliate. So if if we get this executive order, or if it goes to congressional legislation, expect big retaliation from the Chinese, just confirming uh, de- deglobalization and decoupling. Um, and as, as Harold mentioned earlier, the only thing that prom- could possibly delay it is, you know is, there's been a couple of rumors that Biden and Xi in the background are working on a, a peace deal for Russian Ukraine. Obviously, qu- quid pro quo, <laughs> you're not going to introduce that sort of legislation if you're trying to do a peace deal.
0: Thank you, thank you, Nick Uh, Harold. I want to throw a lot at you. You know, throughout your career, you uh, were were working at at the highest levels uh, as an ambassador during the Cold War, and then you also uh, were very involved in globalization. Uh, Things are being made in in other countries now. Uh, To what degree do you think we are in a Cold War right now, an economic Cold War? Are we headed to one? Uh, And also, yeah, what are the consequences of deglobalization and uh, if you think that we're we're in deglobalization, do you have any observations about how the, the clock is sort of being wound back, as you've seen it being wound the other way uh, throughout your career?
1: Yeah, well, I spent quite a few of my years uh, helping to build what we call rules based order, um, the World Trade Organization rules, and before that, uh, the GATT. Um, but that has all broken down now, partly because there's a block of um, developing countries that have decided for political reasons to line up with China. And China was maximum flexibility in interpreting the rules. Uh, they, they don't like all these rules. <laughs> uh, it's something that Bill Clinton should have worked out with the Chinese when he let, let them into the WTO, but he didn't. It's, um, I, I consider that one of the great failures of uh, foreign policy uh, in, in recent decades. But, <clears throat> but now what's happening is a small numbers of like-minded countries that have uh, what they see as common interests. Uh, and especially, this includes uh, UK, US, and a number of former Commonwealth countries, especially in the Asian Pacific. Uh, they are beginning to explore other other kinds of smaller-scale free trade agreements, and we're going to see it uh, in other areas of the world. Uh, Right now, there's something that the press pays no attention to, Oh, the, the Three Seas Initiative. It's the uh, connectivity of the Baltic Sea and the Adriatic and the Black Sea. And about 13 countries are building railways, uh, improving canals, so that there is an industrial uh, system. Uh, and they want to have their own trade agreement, nothing to do with the EU. That they hate the EU because they're always second-hand citizens. Uh, so different areas of the world are going to China is trying to do that also, but China doesn't have much to offer. China tried to build it around the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, but that's coming apart because, a lot, you know, a lot of the countries that benefited from loans from China are finding the loans onerous. They can't pay them. And the Chinese are not being flexible. So and there's a lot of bad feeling towards that whole militant road idea. So different countries exploring new arrangements, um, different groupings are taking place. And I think the WTO is essentially being bypassed. But what's holding it up is that U.S., after Trump, we got a little bit confused as to what was our interest in the Pacific. Uh, And uh, Biden, by his history, Uh, it's easy to forget. His political base from the beginning of his career was industrial unions. So he's biased towards protectionism anyway. Uh, and so so right now US is not exploring a new deal with the Pacific in money, but we're exploring a new defense agreement, but not not trade. But but that to me is where the the next phase of, of world business is going.
0: And so that's what this new order, uh, Nick, looks like politically. Uh, Nick, what are the economic consequences? What, what does the financial world look like in this new world of globalization?
2: It will. It will chase the successful trading. Uh, I just wanted to add one other thing to how to which he was referring. So in Asia Pacific, uh, there is the CPTPP. Okay, and there are negotiations currently going on. Between the UK and the leaders of that group. It's a huge group, but doesn't include China. It's that whole crescent. Southeast Asia, Japan, Southeast Asia, to Australia, New Zealand, India and across. And the UK is gonna wants to join and it's being this serious negotiation. They're on the verge. The interesting aspect and the difference it has between the E with the EU is the EU's protectionism is based on regulatory systems. You need 100 documents just to get it to the border. And another 100 documents to have it imported. And it's got to, you know, it's going to be this condition, this condition. If the banana is too curved, that's not good. You need it. All this is all regulatory. The CPTPP, that's, that's gone. It's pure Smith and Ricardo in terms of a free trade association. Now, there is talk that if the UK joins, that makes the U- as a proxy for the US, and when the appropriate time come, comes, you'll see the US join. China will not be able to join because if it's based on your Smith slash Ricardo principles of free trade, well, China doesn't meet any of those. You can't freely export to China. You cut. There's no card, You know. There's no free flow of capital. So there is talk that the CPTPP for this large group of nations would be a de facto WTO for those nations. If there's any problem, it'll be sorted out with discussion, okay? Now, from a financial markets point of view, if you think think that's going to work and we have evidence of that working, you will be looking at the assets of those countries. Who benefits most, it'll be relative within, and then you'd be looking at the countries that are excluded from that. Okay, China. We we've been just talking about China de-emphasizing exports. Well, one of the obvious trades is, on that basis, you don't really want to be long. Remember, okay, that to me is an obvious trade. C CPTPP countries long, short China. So it that's that's what you're gonna. There may be occasions where you know there's a different trade that you'd be long China and short another block block. Um, For example, BRICS Plus, you know, BRICS Plus is totally dependent on China is a nonsensical thing. India will never participate in it.
0: Right. Brazil, Russia, India, China, acronym became common when emerging markets were doing so well in the early 2000s. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Right. And now there's a
2: couple of countries that are talking about joining, such as Iran and a few others, but India will not join this because it doesn't serve them militarily okay you're talking about lula support supports russia versus ukraine blame ukraine for everything supports maduro in venezuela the castro system in cuba it goes right last week there were two iranian warships in the port of rio what the hell are they doing there okay my thought process would be invoke the Monroe doctrine and get them out but the point is you're the core would be there they're not countries you'd, so Brazil Russia China South Africa maybe because they've shown sympathy towards Russia India take away straight away and then you know that that group just be, basically becomes China and however much you know Russia does what China says in fact they'd all have to do what China says. So uh, I, I think there I'd probably be long remember and short the, the other countries as a basket.
0: Right. Thanks, Nick. Uh, So, Harold, um, we had a conversation previously where you were looking at a speech that President Biden gave in Poland in support of Ukraine. Uh, 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 Senator McConnell in the U.S. made some statements that were very interesting to you, and you said that something was cooking. What is cooking and how does that apply to the potential uh, regulatory uh, uh, restrictions on, on foreign investment on China that were, were happening? Is this being sort of used as a bargaining chip?
1: Um, I have a lot of years of experience dealing with the senior people in the Senate and got to know who's bunny with who and how familiar are those relationships. I can When Biden was elected, and some journalists said McConnell would have been his enemy, I said, no, McConnell is best friends with Biden and has been for decades. They will do deals that nobody will understand from time to time. McConnell is a survivor. He'll take care of his party, but if he can find something to do with Biden, he will. So, I see Biden making the speech, and then McConnell coming out of the blue makes a public speech. There was no reason for him to, to make his statement, but it was total endorsement of Biden. Uh, among Republicans, that must have really quite a stir because the, the Republicans are not unified in support of Biden on Ukraine. So, my brain says those two guys have got something they're doing. Biden has got a deal coming and he needs McDonald's help. And What would that be? I think to me, what I'm reading is he's working with China to do something to stabilize Ukraine and maybe ease the pressure in the U.S. against China. So, it's an unknown, but it's just my experience with people of this type. They 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 not and they they don't accidentally make speeches, and uh, McConnell calculates everything. And I'm sure he's thinking 2024 is presidential year, so he doesn't want to be tagged with you fan next year. So his speech was. I support Biden and Ukraine, We didn't say for how long, but I think what he was doing in helping Biden show a common power in dealing with China.
0: Right, and, and Harold, uh, you wrote a, a piece last year called "What the West Doesn't uh, Understand About Putin," and you write about how you, you know, throughout your your career, you, you met Putin and you were, you know, in touch. You were introduced by uh, uh Primakov, who was known as the, the Henry Kissinger of of Russia. What do you think when you were reading Western accounts of, of Vladimir Putin and his ambitions last year, you know, whether it's objective journalism or you know, op-eds, what were people missing about Putin and his intentions? And yeah, what have you made of, of the, the, the war?
1: Well, Putin's objective, from the beginning, he said this is not about Ukraine. This is about rebuilding um, the greater Russia, But what he means by that is not the Soviet Union. He personally thinks Soviet Union was a bad idea, was bound to fail. He wants to recreate Imperial Russia, Um, you know, one one ruler for a large number of countries, uh, including countries like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. And um, the countries uh, going down from Poland to the um, to the Adriatic on the Black Sea, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, and his interest is in that group of countries, and his ambition is to chip away at at um, the Western resistance. But he began with Ukraine because. It's popular inside Russia. Uh, you know, they have all sorts of um, uh, characterizations of Ufrains full of Nazis and baiters, and, and it's propaganda, but and they were a target. Now, what has happened is uh, the Western countries haven't been paying attention to what is really objective. Uh, And the answer is, uh, he's thinking about some of the neighboring countries, uh, and he's actually building up some uh, positions uh, in Serbia and Georgia. Uh, He he would like to um, uh, run over a couple of the other countries while we all get distracted, but the trouble is, but Putin, had to use the whole of his army, every spare male, so he's running out of capability.
0: And, and Harold, do you think that Russia will invade other countries given what you just said? And I mean, what would be the consequences of that? Given you know how stern the U.S. Uh, is with NATO and NATO, NATO adjacent countries in Europe, the
1: sternness of NATO is new. When he went into Ukraine, nobody in Russia believed that NATO would would be interested. Uh, And and the the calculation was uh, Biden is running away from overseas problems with Afghanistan. He ran out of there without a plan. But it turned out that Poland... And the four Scandinavians, and uh, the Baltic states, and even Belgium and nothing but and uh, Netherlands uh, had had been quietly forming a new military coordination system. Uh, that actually uh, made a terrible press about how this formed, but the U.S. Navy's Second Fleet, which is Not NATO, it's managed out of Norfolk, Virginia, became the uh, coordination point. So, was NATO unified against Russia? No, Uh, reluctantly France and Germany are joining this opposition, but this was a new group of countries that saw their own destiny at stake. And they have no experience with Russia. You know, coming over the border and and uh, and uh, making their life miserable. So, it's, it's NATO, sort of, but it's something new and different. And but it's very well armed, and it has the U.S. Second Fleet, which is a bunch of submarines that have nuclear missiles. in In the Baltic Sea, we even have. Uh, some of the second fleet in the black in the Black Sea, so uh, not familiar to the press, but there's something very big that took place, that changed the nature of Putin's calculation. He didn't see it coming, mm. and now of course he's stuck in a mess. He can't get out uh, easily. He, um, I don't, you know, and he's not well. I mean. Who knows how long he will last? But I think it's very inconvenient what he's doing because the Chinese don't want an all-out confrontation with the U.S. So they may talk about helping Putin, but they're not going to go that far. They they don't want to uh, anger anger the U.S. to the point where we... uh, completely decoupled with China. So, very interesting moment in diplomacy. Uh, now, and personally, I think this is Biden himself and McConnell uh, talking with Xi. I don't think this is Blaine and, 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 and the staff in the White House. I think he uh, has. Traditional Biden deal, yeah, a bean problem. How do I like to cut a deal and reduce the pressure? Very difficult, but somehow our
0: are right. So, so uh, Harold, those points you made are very, very complex. But uh, Nick, in as simple as, as possible, uh, could you explain the ongoing relationship with China, Russia, and the U.S. A- and uh, you know, how you see it? How H- Harold sees it. Uh, just to explain the facts. President Xi is going to visit uh, uh, Russia soon to discuss the war effort, and the U.S. is threatening that it will disclose intelligence about uh, how the China is supplying military, uh, non lethal mili- you know, military uh, uh, supplies to Russia. What's going on here, and how do you think it plays out? And as simple as possible.
2: Okay. If you take the optimist's roots, she goes to. Moscow spends time with Putin, explains a deal that he's hammered together. The deal, uh, from what we understand, what we've heard in the rumor bill, is basically go back to the status quo before this latest war. So Crimea and Donbass stay Russian. Okay? So So Russia gets nothing. Russia gets nothing. Gains nothing from where he was before. Um, Zelensky doesn't want that, he wants to recover everything so in
0: fact if we would were... and sorry by everything you mean crimea which crimea russia already possessed invaded. before the in- invasion uh, before... it seized in 2014 yeah
2: exactly uh it's what they got in twenty fourteen. Yeah. um but before this invasion last year um so w- would would accept what she is organizing i suspect yes because uh, the economy is in pretty shaky ground okay would Zemetsky accepts, that's where Biden has to do most of the work? Biden pro, pro, Biden's task is probably far greater than Xi's task. Um, particularly if you, as much as Russia and Putin would deny it, you know, de facto, Russia is a client state, um, very dependent on China. Um, so I think that. If if Biden and she have created this opportunity, the earnest code goes on to Biden to persuade Zelensky to accept this. And okay? Biden
0: just was in, in Ukraine with Zelensky.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and the interesting aspect is we heard within a month of the the incursion back last year that the Russians were putting out feeders to have a discussion of let's go back to where we were beforehand. Let's stop this. So there was a desire then. The question is whether there is a desire now. Um, even if there isn't a desire now amongst the Russians, one suspects that she will persuade Putin. And it, that's probably all related to the idea of look, we've got so much going on. We're trying to create a different uh, world order, we're trying to create a different. Reserve. We're we're challenging the Americans in the West all over the place. Go back to status quo, pre-invasion status quo. Zelensky's the tough one, and that's where Biden will have to uh, use his powers of persuasion. I don't know whether—is that correct, Howard? Is that a decent analysis of the situation? No. no. Uh, Not not sure how how successful Biden will be, but I think probably quite successful. Because right, just, minute. I want to
0: explain for myself and just to clarify for, for the audience as well. Uh, you, Nick, and I think you, you Harold, are saying that uh, President Xi may attempt to broker a peace when he visits uh, uh, Russia late, soon, and in that scenario, Russia would gain nothing or lose something something from its uh, pre-war invasion. So, so uh, no change, uh, you know, other than the, the unfortunate carnage uh, from, from the war, and so no, no territorial differences. And Nick, you're saying that getting Putin to agree to these terms might actually be easier than getting Zelensky to agree. Uh, Harold, uh, I have a lot of questions about that because, as you both remember, in the first few weeks and months of the war, uh, analysts were saying Russia is can't last any any weeks. The ruble is going to collapse. Uh, they're going to r- run out of dollar. We're going to shut them off the system. They're not going to be able to get to import you know, uh, important manufacturing and advanced systems from from Germany. Um, you know the, the oligarchs they want their handbags from Italy. And the the ruble did collapse uh, briefly. But then uh, the Russian financial system, you know, the, the Russian central bank hiked interest rates to 20 percent, and they demanded that they be paid. And the price of natural gas actually exploded alongside with oil, of which Russia has a lot. And it turns out that uh, the Russian economy, I think in, in real terms, uh, sh- shrank only two to three percent when you know some forecasters were predicting it would shrink by 15 percent. Meanwhile, the European economy n- is not doing so well, as, as you both have, have written about uh, exquisitely. and. Um, you know, I think actually forward expectations for growth are lower in the UK, you know, your your homeland, Nick, than they are in, in Russia. Um, so why would Putin be so willing to, to not accept any victory, even a hollow one that he can go back to his, um, you know, citizenry, citizenry and say, aha, this, this war, this sacrifice, we, we've got, we got something for it. Harold?
1: Yeah, I think Putin understands that he's in trouble. Uh, you- yeah, he did control of the oil market, but he doesn't own any tankers. And if he releases tankers from other, he has to get insurance in order to move the oil. And the only place you can get insurance is in London and pay it in dollars. He's running into that complicated system that is a strain, strain hold on Russia. And so he's surviving at the moment, but the economy is not in great shape. And uh, conversely, if if there's a future for Russia, it's going to have to be China helping. And uh, <clears throat> I think probably China right now is thinking, yeah, we, we, we need to help ourselves. Uh, so now it may turn out that China agrees to help Putin with, with the uh, lethal weapons. If that happens, we can assume there will be a real tough clampdown on everything to do with China in the U.S. and trade and investment. So I think the market is not ready for that. Uh, and it will be bipartisan. So, Say that again. What market's yeah.
0: not ready for what? What will be bipartisan?
1: If if China goes ahead to agree to supply serious weapons to Russia, the US response will be to come down with a sledgehammer on everything to do with China. And essentially cut off investment, trade, everything. a real total decoupling which would be a disaster
2: for the economy by the way
1: Uh yeah and that would hurt china dramatically and the chinese whatever else you can say about them they're not stupid they must have thought this through at the top Uh, they cannot afford an all-out confrontation they can't forget russia they cannot afford to have the umbilical horde with U.S. industry cut,
0: right? So it sounds like you think that the uh, issue of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war are very attached at the hip with uh, U.S.-China trade and financial uh, relationships. It's kind of none or both. It's not either or. It's it's none or both. Uh, if Russia, if the if Chinese attempts to uh, swayed Russia to to accept a, a ceasefire and a, a terms of peace, then US could go easy on China. So in that case, it's a great situation on both fronts. However, if it's unsuccessful, it could be a, a you know, catastrophe again a, a, on both fronts.
2: I mean, you know, if Biden couples out with a peace deal, that's pretty good for the election. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Right? absolutely. He's very motivated, yeah, I suspect. Um, Absolutely, yep. and I would also add, you know, when you says either both or nothing, I would say on the the trip, the 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 investment side, the trade side, they'll ease back. They'll still do some. Right. peace. <clears throat> there will still uh, be yeah. stuff coming and, down the pipeline. <clears throat> yeah. Right. but they will.
1: Ease, they will
2: ease back. Yeah, yeah. they'll ease back.
0: Uh, I, there are several more topics I want to ask both of you about. I want to ask you about global liquidity. I want to ask you about the the health of the U.S. economy and uh, you know the a, a new neo mercantilist order. But before we do, I thought this would be a great opportunity to uh, let our audience know about the, your new research uh, uh, partnership, uh, malmgren Glinsman and Partners. Uh, Nick, what is the focus of this research product? And then tell us about the, the different offerings, the, the daily and the, the weekly.
2: Okay. Our principal focus, one thing I've always noticed when I was on the buy side, is you've got geopolitical specialists with their geopolitical commentary. And then obviously you've got macro market specialists. Never the two combine, there's no fusion. The geopolitical people have tried, but it doesn't really work. And to us, there's that's a big gap. Uh, also the other thing is, you know, some of many of the services uh, on the geopolitical side have become somewhat complacent because it's, a, it's a market it's a big market that's not really serviced by a lot of people. Um, so we deci- we decided, and we've been asked by a couple of big institutions too, is to fuse Harold's evident ex- expertise and uh, my knowledge of the markets into an effort whereby we can look forward, medium and long term, for what we think is coming down the pipeline. And then once we've done that, which is usually geopolitical, is to then come up with actionable ideas that are based off of either hedge, because you can't position for it till it happens, or stock alpha, which is what we're talking about here with China, that's partly stock alpha. We know the co- companies that are going to get slammed if they through, or macro beta, which is also part of this and part of the other p- uh, papers. So what we're trying to do is geopolitical driving fused to macroeconomic analysis, followed by market implications and suggested trades. And there are that's 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 what we call our premium research product and that that has attached to it uh what we found is clients who want to speak on a monthly basis and want to have access if they need us we can speak on a monthly basis and they can have access to us either via bloomberg via email via telegram chat etc and and we're pretty responsive uh, we've got compliments of being responsive in a quick manner and then we also have um which was res- which is a uh, 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 you know a product that's come from before. It's a daily macro newsletter. Um, and we do that because to to quote one of the top strategists on Wall Street who works one of the top research firms on Wall Street. he says he's a, he's a client. Um, he says he needs it because he gets so focused on what he does. It reminds him of the other stuff around the world and even in the US that he should be thinking about too. It's a daily and what I try to do in that is look at the markets look at things that are odd. I did a I did a, an article today about zero days to expiry options <laughs> and how VIX and the various volatility products that are you know tradable have just you know they're not responding because because of these options. Thus, there's a dangerous level of volatility in the gamma and that could cause problems down the, the world
0: broadly speaking, you know, Harold, you are the geopolit- geopolitical uh, world-class expert. Nick, you are the world-class macroeconomic analysis and investing expert, and your expertise is fused, and uh, people can-, can get access to that. There is the daily uh, newsletter, a uh, product that costs $1,200 a-, a year for guidance. Uh, listeners can get discounted access for $900 a year. Uh, they can email me at jack at blockworks.co. There's also a premium. Uh, institutional product that is much much more expensive, and uh, folks listeners can get a twenty percent discount to that uh, by emailing me at jack at blockworks uh, All right, now let's return to the topic of liquidity. I am not not only so blessed to be able to have folks like you, uh, both of you, on for guidance as guests, but that. You know, experts such as yourself who have so much experience are actually listeners to forward guidance as, as well, which I, which I consider an honor. Harold, you mentioned to me that you were listening to an interview I did with uh, Michael Howell, who's an expert on global liquidity, and, and Michael's conclusions were that liquidity bottomed in October of 2022, and since then has been rising. You mentioned to me that you had some different opinions on that. Please explain. <laughs> yeah. Well.
1: I'm not the only one. Um, The well-respected Fed analyst and money-market analyst Lacey Hunt of Washington, he shows his way of measuring liquidity is that liquidity is rapidly shrinking over the last seven months. And he doesn't spell it out, but if he's right, we're going to reach a point very soon where there will if there's no liquidity um, we're gonna have a flash among the non bank lenders because there'll be a a credit mean they, they will be shown to be um uh, you know the tide goes out and they're all standing there with no uh, no foundation. lazy hunt uses um I was told Line 36, um, OGL, overnight deposit liabilities, as a measure of the fluidity of the banking system. And he has the fluidity shrinking the last seven months rather rapidly. He hasn't warned us what that means, but frankly, uh, if you run out of dollars, I mean... Trying to uh, finance day to day in the um, in the repo market, and suddenly find there's no money, uh, there will be a fight, a, a credit event. Um, now we we've done some research of our own, uh, and we concluded that a better thing to watch is the uh, uh, U.S. Reserve Bank's reserve. Uh, reserves at the Fed, and right now, last three or four months, the the number is flat. Um, but <clears throat> um, I, our our belief is that it's going to start uh, falling. because the banks, as you know, of all the the Fed report on banking has this week had said that banks. U.S. banks have stopped lending. I mean, they're just not in the lending business. So the only lenders out there right now are non-bank lenders. Non-bank lenders have, have no, uh, they're not regulated. They have no mandatory reserves. Um, they're all real dealers. They live all derivatives and leveraging. And they're remote, vulnerable, but the but the non-bank lenders in 2008-9, they were a small fraction of the total market. Nonetheless, we had a crash. Now the non-bank lenders are much bigger than the total banking system, maybe a half a yen bigger than the whole banking system. So if there's a credit uh, problem, if there's a dollar shortage that emerges, and at any time in the next few months, there will be a cataclysmic credit contraction. And I see that coming. Uh, So we we, uh, recently did a paper on this as a warning, but I see um, uh, Lacey Hunt sees this coming, Um, Jeff Snyder, is coming, but these people are looking at liquidity, nobody else is looking at liquidity.
0: right? Well, I think a lot of people have different models of liquidity, and that's why they come to different conclusions. Uh, yeah, Nick, I want to ask
2: Jack, can I just quickly,
0: yeah, your your friend Howell in that he was talking about global
2: liquidity, wasn't he?
0: Yes,
2: okay, so global liquidity. If you go back to October, there were boosts from PPSC. Bank of Japan tried to maintain yield curve control after uh, Corona's change of bans. And there was also Yellen using the TGA. Um, at this so point yeah, in time- yeah, That's the Treasury General at-
0: account. It's uh, the US government's yes. checking account with the Federal Reserve. Exactly. And when it's high, that's you know it's an inert form of capital. So as it goes down, uh, you know par- paradoxically, that's more money. So it's been going down as we approach uh, uh, the debt ceiling. It's money uh, doing
2: Exactly. Yeah. So my point on that, just to counter that specifically is one uh, Bank of Japan that that was done in that the situation. I think the next move on your curve control is going to be how do we end it with with Ueda and that and the reason that's that's partly Ueda was chosen because of his contacts, international contacts amongst the top economists and the central bankers. Um, in terms of TGA, it's gone lower. It's lower, so there's less to use. And in terms of the PBOC, which I think is rather interesting, and I just wrote about that today, uh, Bank of Japan wasn't the only uh, central bank looking for a new governor. The PBOC was. And the person that looks likely to win it is not an economist. He's a regulator. And they reckon uh, the the view is, as a regulator, he's been put in because there's going to be so many problems with NPLs and the banks that funded the real estate sector. So the, the person they're looking at is Zubu Heshin, is currently chairman of the CITIC and former deputy governor of PBSC. So they're going from an economist with, with independence to a regulator who actually will not even be in control of PBSC policy. He'll have, a, he'll have somebody to report to as well.
0: But Nick, isn't the isn't the verbiage from the Communist Chinese Party as well as G, print, print, print,
2: for domestic purposes, domestic consumption, that that print, print, and no, I don't think it is print, 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 and I don't think it's necessarily only PBOC. I think it's more fiscal. Okay, Okay. so now, if it's fiscal for the benefit of the domestic consumer, can that leak out? Sure, I guess it can leak out. It's not as impactful as Joe Biden's uh, checks in the post. Uh, It's not as impactful uh, because the US economy is still the prevalent economy, okay? Uh, And an open economy. So I think all these three are probably headed down. So that's contractual.
0: All right, Nick, I want to ask you now about US credit, both within the banking sector, regulated banking sector, as well as the shadow banking, non banking sector. Isn't it true that the U.S. banking sector is, is in the middle of a, a lending boom? If you look at credit cards, I mean defaults are so low. The unemployment rates at three point four percent. That you know, individual defaults like uh, net charge-offs on U.S. credit cards are lower than they were in 2019. Uh, and yes, I, I, I don't know if Harold was referring to the um, senior loan officer survey from the Federal Reserve, and credit is getting tight, tighter but I don't know if it's getting tight. Uh, it, it was very, very loose because of, you know, the giant credit bubble that we've been in, but uh, you know, where do you think we are in the process? Because if there's a credit bust in the middle of 2024, uh, you know, Harold's thesis is right, but that's very different than it happening in the middle of 2023.
2: Um, I, I look at, I, I think credit conditions will get tighter in the US. I think if you look at market measures, You know, everybody comes away. Look, when you've done a study of the market measures of credit, thinking, "What on earth is going on there with rates, basically almost at five percent? Why are the credit markets behaving like this?" Um, You're right.
0: That that spreads are so tight.
2: Yes, Uh, in terms of your household debt, it is punching higher, but there's going to be a limit to that. uh, in, In my opinion, I think first signs of the problems of. We're going to be faced with this. There's problems with uh, car leases, second-hand and new car leases. Okay, and I, it's interestingly vis-à-vis the domestic consumer and the domestic economy, the car market is phenomenally indicative of what's coming down the, the road. It was through inflation; it should be considered as, as such for credit too, because apart from your mortgage, which is a whole different ball game. Uh, Outside of the mortgage, the car is the next big credit event in your life. And you're not gonna go be late with your mortgage. That's the last thing you're gonna do. So the car market will, car leases, that's gonna be the first indicator, is sort of beginning to twitch in that direction of tighter credit. So I'm, I'm feeling we've had our revenge consumption. Certainly services are benefiting. Certainly, the labor market is extremely tight. People are working. People are generating income. But there are signs that we are getting to that point where we, we're in the froth of a cappuccino as opposed to into the, in the cappuccino. Uh, and I would I would look... I, I anticipate that start coming off, even with improving inflation. But I think people are going to be frustrated with inflation. Okay? So... Uh, my Our call is the credit side from the banking system is likely to be pulled back. I think the loan officer's report confirmed that, and data from the, the auto market is also telling you exactly the same, but from the other side. So I'm looking at, really looking at the car market. Then the other thing, um, it could be related, but trucking and freight indices are all collapsed. So, are we just working off inventory, and are people taking advantage of the good pricing on that inventory that's being worked off? I suspect so. Jackie, look right. puzzle. I bet you. I bet you've been to some sales and taken advantage of some of the sale prices.
0: No, no, but I, I just. I think. I think it's from the Federal Reserve. Car, you're absolutely right about car, the car loans. Uh, that is the only market where delinquencies and uh, uh, charge-offs are. Approaching or at levels of 2019, every other market: student loans, credit card loans, and uh, particularly mortgages, defaults remain low. And you know, when when the the first scenes in the Big Short when the the bears are getting uh, riled up and buying credit default swaps, uh, they were. Quote being wrong by the market, but even then delinquencies were, were rising. I mean, mortgages now I think are the not, I don't know if they're the lowest ever, but they are uh, the lowest for after the Great Financial Crisis, which which really is saying something. So yeah, uh, well, we didn't yeah. have
2: a broad bubble in real estate. Not as not like yeah. we had it. Oh seven oh eight or building up to that. Um, so no cars cars are the indicator I'm looking at. It's just a, because also cars is not just traditional banks. Some of the non banks yes.
0: Absolutely, I, I I think Harold is spot on the money when he says the to the extent that there there are problems and it is in the non bank uh, lending market. I I totally agree. And also similar to the mortgage bubble in prior to the Great Financial Crisis, highly related uh, loans in the audio sector now highly related to the value of the collateral. So if you you bought a car that. and you got a $35,000 loan, that's now $20,000. You know, people, people have a lot of problems. That's why folks are walking away from their cars. Uh, Yeah, I I don't want to dismiss that as an issue at all. Um, um, Gentlemen, I now now want to ask you about, you know, my favorite topic, the Federal Reserve. Uh, Vice Chair Brainard, uh, a noted dove on the Federal Open Market Committee, is departing to join the uh, Biden White House as a senior economic advisor and uh, a few trial balloons uh, have been f- floated by a former Real Vision guest and Wall Street Journal reporter uh, Nick Timrose, those being uh, Janice Everly and Karen Dynan to replace Brainard and to be the, the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, a.k.a. the Federal Reserve number two, the uh, person who has the most power, only, only second to Powell, at least sufficiently. What's going on in Washington uh, over over there? Are these people doves? Are they hawks? What are the likelihood that these people will, um, you know, pass a Senate or Congress confirmation? Harold, how about we start with you?
1: Lyle Reynard was a dove, and she was the person around whom the other doves gathered. They watched for her lead. If she talks up, they talked up. But, but she's the leader. Of, uh, let's say, White House friendly uh, uh, member of the FOMC. Now she's out. So, what will um, the Fed decide? Well, um, my guess is the White House will be in the middle of this appointment. With and so will she. They'll be looking for someone uh, who is essentially a dub. Oh. And, and um, <clears throat> There are a number of names out there, one that has not been mentioned, but I remember from um, Obama days, Austin Goolsbee. Uh, he was passed over because they could not get unanimity you know, about him, but he is definitely of that dovish, uh, progressive side of the Democratic Party, and uh, <clears throat> I would I think there's will roof for somebody of that ilk. Howard would like another hawk, but he doesn't decide this. Um, so he's pretty well dug in, and he's not going to change whoever comes in. He wants rates to go somewhat higher, and then he wants to hold them up there for a year or more. And everybody failed to understand what he wants to do but that to me was evident along this long time ago he wants higher but much longer yes and uh, and that by the way is going to feed into all this non-bank lending because none of those non-bank lenders and visits rates that stay up for a
2: long period
0: or an inverted
2: Uh, yield curve for so long Yep. Right?
0: Yes. Uh, Nick, comments either on the next Fed vice chair or just how high do you think the the Fed will keep rates and for how long the somewhat ridiculous rate cuts that were being priced into 2023 are uh, now, in my opinion, more rationally, they are gone. Uh, And the the market estimates the Fed will get to, you know, maybe 5.25, maybe 5.50, uh, 5.5% on the upper range of the Fed. six
2: being the cap. Six being the cap. Uh, What do you mean cap? People As the some people are saying we're of- going to get up to six, right? And, um, look, a couple of comments on the FOMC. It's not a it's not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. I think Lyle Brainard's departure makes the FOMC more hawkish because I think it's given Powell more sway over others, and I think Powell is adequately backed up by Chris Waller. And then the, the I mean the, the most extraordinary transition is uh, Cash card, mm-hmm. right? I can't say a bit. I mean, Austin Goolsby is the preferred external choice, but he's never going to get through the House, the Senate, for approval. Um, That's trouble. I'm surprised they haven't talked about Jason Furman. Uh, They're not, you know, that would be appropriate on. Maybe he's not progressive enough. That's the problem.
0: I I think, uh, yeah, maybe.
2: Maybe that's the case. But he would be, you know, somebody that I suspect Powell would enjoy working with. My my concern with the the two in the trial balloon is, you know, if your first introduction to the world is, let's raise the inflation target to three percent, out. she's it never going to have the credibility. She won't pass it. Uh, and remember, Powell's got a reasonable say in this. You know, if you want left wingers or progressives, you could always go to Daly or Williams. Um, although Williams trouble with that is both of them are regional fed presidents earning a lot more money than they would get if they were vice president
0: right and not, uh, like then multiples. they would have to be replaced as fomc you know you're you're yeah you're, you're I mean, paul in peter's position so then someone has to replace paul you know um yeah. uh so, and yeah so just uh, J- janice eberly uh, a professor of economics uh, she's floated as a p- potential replacement uh, in the nick Timorose article for, for you put, brainard points
2: it out the paper. You pointed out Yeah, paper,
0: yeah. I, I, I uh, just was going through her research. And in 2019, she wrote a paper. Yeah. It was released in February 2020, interesting times, uh, that found that a 3% inflation target, had the Federal Reserve adopted it prior to the great financial crisis, would have resulted in the uh, the US economy emerging from the great financial crisis uh you know, two years or many quarters earlier uh than it had. And so she, she talked about forward guidance. She talked about a three percent inflation target. She talked about how ZERP uh you know zero interest rate policy was abound and actually, you know, maybe rates had to be the negative five percent. And look, two two cap two huge caveats are that uh academics talk about hypotheticals all the time. That, you know, that's their job. So that doesn't mean that she necessarily endorses that. And also, as you pointed out, the the mega doves of you know, years of three, four years ago are now some of the biggest hawks, such as Kashkari. So the fact that she wrote that in 2019 may not be representative of her views. Nevertheless, uh, it's important to recognize.
2: Well, and if it's not representative of her views, she should make that publicly clear as quickly as possible because- Great point. To be honest with you, a 3% inflation target with all the pumping and easing that they did during that period, really, it would, it would, it would really bring the economy out quicker? I'm not so sure. What she is talking about is not zerk. She's talking NERP. That's <laughs> yes. da- the that, that's danger. And also, legally, it's not clear that the, the Federal Reserve can gain negative rates. So that was a real speculation. Uh, remember, even now, even now, uh, most of the world's central banks that have tightened are still negative real rates. Okay? So we're still not restrictive. Um, so I... You have stirred the pot there, Jack. By pointing that out, you've stirred the pot because that's the first thing that I've recently seen related to her. That's not a good sign. You know, Republicans are not going to like that particularly, but I don't think the street would like it so much, to be honest with you. And she's there. Remember the other thing that she has as vice president. This is where Brainard was good. She has to know the system really well. Because she's also got to back up how with the functioning of the system and all the issues with the system itself. What well, it tells you that Janet Janice Eberly has that knowledge? That's the problem with the people that haven't been at the Fed. They haven't got the knowledge of the, the system working. I mean, our mutual friend Joseph would be a in that respect, would be way better as a vice president of the Fed. Because he knows the system, he knows the plumbing. You know
0: I love, love that. I could get I could get a, the vice chair on, on forward guidance. That'd be <laughs>
2: you can pretty good.
0: Massive that. Well, uh, gentlemen, this has been absolutely fascinating. I mean, I I'm so lucky to have this, I hope um, you know the audience recognizes just what a, what a privilege this has been to to hear your analysis. I, I have a, a final uh, follow up question, but yeah, folks can find you, Harold, on Twitter at uh, Hal's Rethink, and Nick, they can find you on Twitter at N Glinsman. Um, again, if people want discounted access to uh, uh, Glins- uh, uh, malmgren Glinsman, either the daily for uh, the nine hundred or the institutional research product, reach out to me at Jack at Blockworks And it would be helpful if, in your subject line, you, you could make it clear that's what you're you're looking for. Um, my, my final question is just to to sum up: What do you think is is coming down the pike for uh, U.S. Uh, regulatory action on on China and the, the significance? Because the subject matter is so broad and has so many consequences. I think it's easy for the audience and for me to somewhat get lost. But you know, in simple words as possible, can you can you explain what's coming and what are the consequences of that? Uh, uh, Nick, let's start with you and Harold, I'll give you the final word.
2: Okay. Uh, I obviously a de-emphasis on exports as the number one driver for the economy. This is actually something that Michael Pettis has been calling for for a long time. Okay. Emphasis on domestic consumers, de-emphasis on exports and the large SOEs. Um, Ultimately, there will be more and more restrictions on exports to China and finance of China, capital investments in China. That will come. I suspect that will be followed by the allies. And my view on that is there's a simple trade that can be kept on the books, in the back books. Uh, You can probably structure it through options. Uh, Well, you can structure it through options is... I did, I, you know, first stop on the dollar RMB seven ten seven twenty, and then it goes north. Okay, uh, I just think you know we're gonna have a it's gonna be a closed economy ultimately.
1: No, I'm I'm on board the, uh, but, but I've been saying this quite a while uh, that the RMB was gonna weaken, and uh, and that number can gonna get bigger and bigger. There is no way that they can keep uh, the trade sector just viable, stable, without weakening of the currency. But the incoming capital uh, without the trade surplus is diminishing. Investors are getting cautious. So they are... They are gradually developing a dollar shortage. However, they may say that they love um, alternative currencies, but the hard reality is uh, Chinese business needs dollars to do business. And um, they're in trouble. Uh, some, um, Where I'm coming from, just so everybody understands, when I left government, uh, in the late 70s, uh, I had one after another uh, CEO who asked me to come in and spend some time rethinking their business direction. It was a novel experience, but it gave me huge insight into some of America's biggest companies. And then I got invited in by some of the biggest Japanese companies, especially Toyota. What do we do? And I helped them um, rearrange where they produced and, and move to the US. And, and, as you know, they're the biggest producer in the US now. Um, I had a lot of experience with this moving around, uh, which was different from the so called uh, uh, offshoring or runaway jobs. Because while that was going on, we had onshoring occurred also. The German arm makers are building up a strong position in Alabama right now. Not for the U.S. market, but they want to use Alabama as an export platform for Latin America and China. But they think that the platform in Germany is, is too costly. So... A process is going on that I'm familiar with for a lot of years, so so, um, they can know some numbers, but I know the direction of thinking uh, at the top of a lot of these big big industries. Um, And several occasions I was asked if I would come in during the C-Suite and, uh, for example, GE uh, before Jack Welch I was asked about I was coming in and being, being the new CEO uh, after a short stint. Well, I turned down those jobs. I didn't want to be in another bureaucracy, but but I've been dealing with uh, these top-level thinkers. Where are they planning to go? What do they see? So, uh, uh, and then, of course, what are the governments up to? So, I have a really good network in the key countries. I, I can't tell you what I, what I think about Lula because Lula is unpredictable in Brazil, but but around the world, um, I have a good sense of what um, she must be thinking longer term, what Russia, Russia's predicament is now what the trading companies are doing outside the visibility of uh, of our press. You know, uh, a handful of trading companies dominate everything from oil to food and fertilizer. Uh, But I'm familiar with that whole array, too. Um, So I was brought back into this by a couple of old hands who said, you know all these things, you know how it works, you know where it's going, and you get off your butt and return the work? Yeah. And, and um, here's Nick, he'll work with you. Um, Nick and I uh, are finding this really agreeable. His mind goes really high speed, but with Nick, we, we are every day spotting numbers and developments that we're finding pretty exciting. So what we're doing is research outside the box. Most of the, the big boys things.
2: And also I have to thank Harold because as you know, Jack, I've had my health problems and this has just given me, elevated me no end. Uh, well, so I'm on the path to recovery. And I think psych- psychologically it's clearly due to uh, Dr. Malmgren.
0: Well, that's wonderful to hear. Thank you so much for joining uh, both of you. And thank you, everyone, for watching.